We are continuing with our series called Cultivate. Our main scripture is coming from Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible and you want to turn over there, follow along, you can do so right now. If not, as always, the scriptures will be up on the screen. And the, about the middle of the last century, there was uh, a man named Leo DeRocher. He was a, a professional baseball player, then he became a well-known manager in Major League Baseball. And he famously said, uh, nice guys finish last. Nice guys finish last. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that if you don't take advantage of your opponent's weaknesses, if you don't bend the rules a little bit in your favor, you're probably going to lose. Now, was he right? You know, sometimes we, we see things and it, it looks like those who are really trying to, to do their best or, or reach out to somebody get kind of smacked around a little bit. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? I, I read an article not too long ago about the World Championship of Marathon Kayaking. Yes, I was bored. Marathon kayaking. And in this, uh, this race, the Danish team was, was leading. And in second place was the British team. And the Danish team uh, was coming along. And somehow they, they uh, broke their boat. They messed up their boat somehow. Now, instead of being like me and just zoom on past and go, see you, sucker, the British team stopped and helped the Danish team repair their boat. And then they all got back in the water. And the Danish team wound up beating the British team by one second. You would have thought the Danish team would have at least slowed down just a little bit because they felt sorry for them or something. But it, it, sometimes it looks like even though we're doing the right thing, we didn't win. Or it doesn't look like we won to other people. Now, the one thing that the British, the British team did win is they won a, a, an award, an international award that's given to uh, athletes who show extreme sportsmanship and fair play. I guess that's a good consolation. The first time that award was ever given was during the 1964 Winter Olympics. And what happened was during the, the bobsledding competition, the Italians had just taken the lead in the overall competition in their last run. So this was the championship run going on for these guys. And they had just taken the lead, and there's only one team left after them, which also happened to be a British team. They got done. They got down to the end, and as the British are pulling their bobsled up and getting ready to do their final run, they realize that there is a bolt that is broken off of their sled, which now makes it too dangerous for them to race. So the officials call down and tell the Italian team that, that the, the Brits aren't going to be able to, to run the race. You win. Congratulations. But instead of celebrating their good fortune at winning, they went and took the bolt off of their bobsled and sent it up to the British team. And the British team was able to repair their bobsled 
and make their last run. And not only did the British team win the gold medal, but they set a world record time doing this. And once again, it looks like Leo DeRocher was right. Good guys finished last. But what looks apparent in the eyes of the world is often different in the way that the Lord sees it. We know that we don't live by what we see. We live by faith. Correct? So we're in this series called Cultivate, and we're learning to live in the Spirit and produce, as Paul called it, the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, we're just going to take a portion of the Scripture this week. It says, But the fruit produced... By the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all of its varied expressions. Joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless." And as we talked about last week, the fruit of the Spirit is progressive. It's really building upon itself. If you're walking and living in the love of God, you can expect joy. And if you're living in joy, there's going to be peace. And if you're living in peace, you can live in patience. Patience being the, the lesson that we did last week. And let me just encourage you, if you didn't get... If you weren't here last week or you were serving in children's ministry and you didn't get to hear the message last week on patience, go to the website, ncctyler.org, and listen to it. And I don't say that just because, you know, I was speaking, but I know that the Lord really changed my heart with the things that I was, was sharing. The Lord taught me how to not live in frustration and instead live in patience. So if you find yourself being frustrated... That's not the way the Lord wants you to live. So go take a listen to that. Last week we talked about patience, and this week we're going to talk about kindness and virtue, or kindness and goodness. Living in patience instead of frustration produces kindness and goodness. Now just real quickly, the two Greek words that are translated kindness and goodness there, I just want to give you the, the uh, de definition of those. Kindness means moral excellence in character or demeanor. In other words, moral excellence in your attitude. It also means to be useful or employed by goodness. You see how these two go together? The Greek word translated goodness means to be upright in heart so you benefit others. So you benefit others. One deals with attitude. One deals with actions. In other words, doing the right thing with the right motivation. Right thing with the right motivation. Now, I'm not going to put any of this on any of you guys, okay? Sometimes I don't always have the right motivation, and I'm not always doing the right thing. So we're just going to talk about me for a while. Is that okay? We'll, we'll point out my stupidity. You're not pointing out my stupidity, so all the rest of you be quiet. I'm pointing out my stupidity. 
There are times when we may be doing the right thing, but we have the wrong motivation. And this really is, from, from a kingdom perspective, it's a misstep, even if the people are applauding you. Even if people think it's awesome. It leads to disillusionment and loss of passion. If you're doing it for the wrong heart, sooner or later you won't be excited about it anymore. And I want to look at this in, in three different ways. Ministry, marriage, and money. Just real quickly. Ministry, marriage, or relationships, or family. You could throw that in there. And money. In ministry... Doing the right thing with the wrong motivation is sometimes doing ministry because it makes me feel good. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, younger in, in, in my ministry, I preached, and I love to preach, and I still love to preach, but I did it so people would tell me how good I was at it. So people, people would go, oh, you're just... I love it when you preach, I, you know, that, that type of thing. Uh, I, ha I had a, one of my best friends who worked for a, a, a large national ministry and heard just lots of, of big-name preachers. They would come in and out of the ministry there. He told me on several occasions that he said, I don't care who I've heard. He goes, you're still my best preacher. You're still my favorite preacher. I love to listen to you more than I love to listen to anybody else. And I'm like, it's because I'm awesome. <laughs> about time you figured that out. <laughs> but when you get into that attitude, the Lord has, has a way sometimes of, of, of humbling you. Uh, you may have heard this story. I've shared it a few times, but for the sake of those that have not heard it, I'm going to share it again. About uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, Lisa and I went to a, a, a service being held by a friend of mine and... Um, we went in, I hadn't seen him in, in a little while, and he saw us sitting in the congregation, and he had me stand up and wave to everybody, and he said good things about me, and then I got to sit down. Well, after the service, a lady came up to me, and she said, did you ever preach at so-and-so church? I said, well, actually, I did. She goes, I knew that was you. I knew that was you. She goes, that was the best sermon I have ever heard in my life. She said, the revelation that I got from that sermon, I lived on it for months. And I'm sitting there going, it's because I'm awesome. And then she, she's all excited, and she said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, this is when Lisa and I had really just come on staff at the church. And I said, well, we're working with junior high kids over at this church in Tyler, and her went to, what? And she said, I thought you would be pastoring a big church somewhere or something like that. And then she just turned around and walked away. I was like, lady, thank you for ruining my entire evening. I appreciate that. But when our heart is not in the right place, we set ourselves up for those type of things. And God lovingly reminding me what, that, what I was doing, working with those middle school kids, was just as important, if not more important, than pastoring some big church somewhere because that's where God had put me at the time. Amen. Think about it. Um, God, God doesn't usually come along and ask our opinion to do things, does he? 
Sometimes he tricks us into thinking it was our idea. But a lot of times God will put us in a situation that we didn't necessarily expect to be in or even want to be in. Think about Peter and Paul. The two guys who, who, who were probably the, the, the biggest icons of the, the early church. You've got one who was ignorant and unlearned, as the Pharisees said of Peter. We know he was a rough, gruff fisherman. We know that he had salty language because when they accused him of being a, a disciple of Jesus, uh, it says that he refudiated that with a curse. And then you had Paul. Paul, who had a Ph.D. in Jewish stuff, right? Paul, who had learned from the greatest rabbi of the time. He said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul, who was ready and right there and leading the way when they were first persecuting the church. Now, in the way that I think, because there was really only two groups of people that the Lord was going after, the Jews and then the heathens, right? The Gentiles. I would have sent Peter to the Gentiles because you would think that he could probably speak their language, would not be offended if they said something off color or did something dumb. And then I would send Paul, who has a Ph.D. in Judaism, to the Jews because he can, he can show them from the Bible the fulfilling of Scripture, Right? But God didn't do it that way, did he? And God doesn't do it that way with us a lot of times either. We think, oh, I'm perfectly suited for this. And God said, but I want you to do this. Right? I had a friend who was a missionary to Africa. He was there for 10 years. He had two, two irrational fears, water and snakes. He spent 10 years starting churches amongst villages, and the only way to get to the villages was up a river. He couldn't swim. He was terrified of water. I went to Africa with him one time, spent a little time over there with him, and I'm sitting on the, on the, the bow of the boat, and the, you know, the water spraying, the sun, it's just so nice. I'm sitting up there, and I turn around, and I look at him, and he's got a life vest on, floaties on his arm, and got himself tied down to his chair. And he said, I'm not falling out of this boat. <laughs> but the Lord used him, even though it was not where he wanted to be or how he wanted to be there. The Lord used him to start over 40 churches in 10 years. People that had never heard the gospel. So we need to be doing it with the right motivation, with the right heart. In marriage or relationships, however you want to put it, even with family, if your heart to get married, or even if you're married and you still think this is the way it should be, is that your spouse, you think he, she, it, whatever, needs to be fulfilling your needs and only your needs, you got it wrong. There is, look, it's, it's, it's the right thing. There's nothing wrong with getting married. I mean, I'm a man most blessed. But if my whole heart was she needs to fill my needs, then I've already missed out. If, if, if for some reason I, th I think she completes me, then I have missed out. 
Because as wonderful as she is, she is never going to complete me. God has to complete me. I have to be whole in Him before I can even be in a real relationship. I may be married, but not in a real relationship. There's a lot of people that are married, and they're looking for their spouse to fulfill some need in their heart and in their life. And, when, and it's God, only God that can fill that place. Only God that can fill that place. So I'm not looking for her to fill a need in my life. I'm looking to God. And the last is money. And don't think we're almost done because i got two more points. <laughs> if, if, if your whole attitude with money is more money, more money, more money, <laughs> you're probably already missing it. And let me say, is there anything wrong with money? No. Is there anything wrong with making money? No. Is there anything wrong with providing for your family? No. But I have seen, I've seen it numerous times where a family will come into the church, this church or other churches, and when they came in, their, their life was falling apart, their marriage was falling apart, everything is falling apart. And they come in and they get ministered to. God does a lot of healing in their heart and in their life. And they are absolutely surrounded by love and supported in that church. And then a job offer comes. Is there anything wrong with taking another job? No. Is there anything wrong with taking a job where you make more money? No. Is there anything wrong with even moving away to take a job? No. But you better ask God what he wants first. Because it would be better to stay right where you are and make less money knowing that your kids are in church, knowing that your kids are being supported, knowing that, that somebody's there when you have problems. Can you find another church? Yeah, you can. But so many people just assume, and it's, oh, I got this great job offer and I'm gone. You better hear God. Right thing, wrong motivation. Because a whole lot more money is not going to make it a whole lot more better if God is not in it. So the second way we can look at this is wrong thing, right motivation. Wrong thing, right motivation. Once again, in kingdom perspective, this is a misstep. Even if there's some fruit. Because you, be, you could have the right heart to do something and, and God will lovingly bless it. But it's not where he really wants you. This will lead to unfulfilled expectations and even burnout. I'm telling you, I have never been doing what God has called me to do and ever felt burned out. I've been tired. But I have never felt like, I don't want to do this anymore, Lord. I'm just done. I quit. I've never felt that way. Why? Because you're doing it with the right heart, doing the right thing. In ministry, we call this uh, the wrong seat on the bus. You may be on the bus, and the bus is headed in the right direction, but you're just in the wrong seat. And the seat that you're in is not fulfilling the call of God on your life. But I'm sitting, in, I'm sitting here because I've, I've just got to. I've just got to. No, you don't got to. You should be doing 
what the Lord wants you to do. Pastor Sam has told the story about when he, he first began preaching, how he would go and do these evangelistic crusades, and people were getting saved. That's a good thing, right? But the whole time that he's doing these evangelistic crusades, his pastor's heart is screaming, who's going to take care of these people? Who's going to follow up with these people? Who's going to disciple these people? You understand what I'm saying? He was not called to be an evangelist, to do the work of an evangelist, sure. But to be an evangelist, no. He's called to be a pastor. And aren't we glad that he's called to be a pastor? He's a fantastic pastor. He loves the people in a way that I've never seen anybody love people. But I have seen evangelists try to be pastors, and although they preach really, really well, and they can get you stirred up and excited, there's no pastoral care going on, so the people are just really weak. We need all of it. Don't try to stick yourself in a place that God has not put you. There's a, you've got the right heart about it. You've got the right motivation about it. But be where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. It's so much more fulfilling. In marriage, relationships, or, or family, the wrong thing, right motive may be to keep peace in the house. Now, is it good to have peace in the house? It is good to have peace in the house. But to keep peace in the house, we're just not going to confront any issues. That's not good. Because there are times when things have to be confronted. If they're confronted in love, if it's done the right way, it can be absolutely productive. Right? But you can flip that over. If you're, if you're somebody that's not afraid of confrontation, if you just want to jump right in the middle of everything all the time, there are people like that. Just want to jump right into the middle of it. Well, if you've not spent time building love for the situation, building love for the person in the situation... Stay out of it for a while. It's all to, to, to bring about change and to bring about peace and to bring about love in the house, right? That's the right motivation. But let's make sure we're doing it the right way. And last, money. Sometimes we have the right motivation, but we're just doing the wrong thing with money. Let's say you want to save some money. Is that a good thing? That's a good thing. Let's say you want to pay down your bills, pay off your credit card, something like that. Is that a good thing? That's a good thing. Let's say you want to save up for a vacation. Vacations are good, right? But how do we not do it? By stopping tithing and giving to the church. If that's your savings plan, you're already out of balance. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be, be ugly about that or anything, uh, I've had people say to me, God don't need my money. No, God doesn't need your money. We need your money. That's how we turn the lights on. Okay? And they're, they're, God set this up. This is how the ministry goes forward. God is not up in heaven counterfeiting dollar bills. Okay? He's not going to rain it from heaven. He uses his children to supply the ministry's needs. That's how it's supposed to be. And how do you live off of 90% better than you can live off of 100%? Because you're living in the blessings of God. Okay? The Bible says if you want to hang on to it all, it's going to be like putting, putting money in, a, in your pocket and there's a hole in your pocket. 
Some of you have heard me talk about when Lisa and I were having trouble uh, tithing and giving. I was making more money than I had ever made in my life, and we couldn't make ends meet. But the moment that, that we set our heart, hey, we're doing this because we know this is what the Lord wants us to do. Not out of some legalistic thing, but really going to the Lord and praying. The blessings is just open. God blesses those. It's, it, it is about giving and receiving. Okay, so we've had right thing, wrong motives, wrong thing, right motives. What does it look like when it's the right thing and right motives? That's where we want to be, right? Because when you're doing the right thing with the right motives, the kingdom wins. It leads to fulfillment. It ensures love, joy, and peace and patience are flowing. And it ensures that you're right in the place that God wants you to be. Once again, how does this look in ministry? It's being in the right seat on the bus. There was a, a gentleman that, that came from, from Gateway Church up in Dallas. We invited him to come over and spend some time with, with the staff. And he told us that he had been at Gateway, Robert Morris's church there that runs, you know, like nine zillion people. He had, he had been there from the very beginning of the church. He was a good friend of Robert Morris's. And he was one of the first associate pastors on his staff. And it was great when the church, you know, was only 1,500, just a tiny thing, you know. But when it got to the place that he had to start overseeing staff and he wasn't able to do the ministry himself, they realized, he didn't quite realize it yet, but they realized that he was in the wrong seat on the bus. And they moved him. They took him out of that associate pastor's position and they put him over the ministry that he was now leading where he would go out and help churches. And he said at first it felt like a, a demotion because he had been friends with, with Robert for so long. You know, he'd see him and now he, not only did, did, did they move him, but they moved his office. So he's not close to Robert anymore. He's not seeing Robert anymore. He's not getting to talk to Robert anymore. It's like, how can this be good, God? But the moment that he started doing it, as he got into it, he realized that's exactly what he was created to do. And he absolutely loved going out and spending time with these churches and helping them figure it out. It was what he was good at. It was what God created him to be. And you were created for something, believe it or not. Even teenagers, they were created for something. God's got good plans, good purposes for you. And we just need to find that place. Find that place on the bus that God has for you. In marriage, in relationships, in family, it's learning to speak someone else's love language. It's learning to minister. I, I want to minister to my wife. And guess what? She doesn't receive love the same way that I receive love. If you've never taken the five love language tests, Google it, take it, it's free. You'd be amazed at how different you and your wife or you and your kids may happen to be. But when you realize what ministers to them, 
then you can start sowing into that. Because we took the test, and guess what? My number one love language was like her number four. And her number one love language was my number four. Mine is physical touch. That's the reason I'm always wanting to pat people on the shoulder and hug and, and things like that. She knows that if I'm ever stressed out, there is nothing, nothing that is going to relieve that stress more than just a big hug from her. I mean, I can literally feel my blood pressure going down. Just a big hug from her. But guess what? That's not her number one love language. She's ministering to me. Her number one love language is acts of service, which is so low down here for me. It really is. You know, if, if I walk out here after the service and, and I see that the trash can is overflowing with all those water bottles, which it tends to do, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change the trash. And I've been doing that before. And somebody see me doing it who happened to be standing right there before I even came up. And they go, oh, let me do that for you, Pastor Chris. And I'm sitting there thinking, you should have been doing it to begin with. <laughs> so that's not necessarily my love language. I appreciate you taking the water bag. I appreciate you taking that out of the way. But that's not my love language. But it is her love language. Do something for the woman. Now, I learned this, and I get the Biggest points from my wife, doing the dishes. Doing the dishes. I am a dishwashing fool. I'm serious. I'm not saying she doesn't ever have to do the dishes anymore. She doesn't get in there and do them. But I try to do them before she even thinks about it. I'm going to wash the dishes. I'm going to unload the dishwasher. I'm going to wash that stuff off. I'm going to put it in. And every time I do, I try to do it sometimes when she's not even in the house. And when she comes in, she realizes that it's clean. And she comes in. She goes, oh, you did the dishes. And I go, that's because I'm awesome. <laughs> but that ministers to her. I got to speak her love language. And it's worth investing in there. I'm doing the right thing with the right motivation. I'm not doing it to try to get her to, to tell me how awesome I am. I'm doing it so I can love her more. So I can show her that I love her more. Thank you. <laughs> and in money, in money, doing the right thing with the right motivation is just being in harmony with God's laws of giving and receiving. It seems that we live in a, an unthankful world where kindness and goodness are overlooked and even sometimes mocked. So why would we pursue a life characterized by these fruits of the Spirit? Well, number one, because we're showing the heart of Jesus. That should seem very, very simple and very, very obvious, but sometimes we forget that we really are the ones that are showing Jesus here on this earth. Romans 2.4 asks us, Do you realize that all the wealth of His extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you to repentance. Well, how does Jesus show forth all of his kindness here on the earth? Through your bright and smiling faces. That's how he does it. We're doing the right things with the right motivation to truly express the kindness and goodness of God. But doing the right thing 
with the right motivation doesn't always seem to make sense. And unlike the movies, doesn't always mean that we get the results that we thought we were going to get. Think of the Good Samaritan, the story Jesus told. Here's a guy that he was an outcast because he was a Samaritan. He spent his time and his money getting the guy into the, the hotel and getting him taken care of, and nobody ever thanked him. Right? But Jesus said, go and do likewise. Think of Joseph. He showed the right heart. He showed the right motivation. When Mary, I would have loved to have heard this story. Mary shows up and says, I'm pregnant. And he's like, whose is it? It's God's. But being a righteous man, the Bible says, he was going to put her away quietly. He wasn't going to make a big deal of it anyway. And because his heart was open that way, God was able to speak to him. And God spoke to him and said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. It'll be okay. But can you imagine? That's, that's about all the story that, that we really think about, and we think about it you know, once a year at Christmas. But think about what was going on. All of the social Shame and stigma going on at this time. And we're not talking 2018. We're talking year zero, one, somewhere in there. Women didn't come up pregnant if they were not married. That's not the way it worked. And can you imagine being in that, that, that small clan of a village and everybody knowing she's pregnant and you knowing it's not yours. But he had the right heart and the right motivation, yet there's not one word that, that, that he ever said that's recorded in the Bible. He, he didn't get, you know, the, the book of Joseph. He didn't get some long passage about him. And he just disappears from the story. We don't even know what happened to him. You know, they assume he died, but the Bible doesn't say that. What kind of thanks did he get for going through all of that? Nothing that you could see here on the earth. Many times the kingdom things that we do are only heard, seen, and cheered in heaven. And you got to understand that's the way it's going to be. I'll end with this story. There was a British financier named Cecil Rhodes, and he's the man that uh, his fortune endowed the, the Rhodes Scholarships. And this man, in his social class, and with all of his wealth, he was a real stickler for the way a gentleman should dress. If you were having dinner with him, he expected a clean, pressed suit and a tie. If it was a more formal affair, he expected you to be in a tuxedo. Now, there was a young man that had been invited to Mr. Rhodes' home for a party. 
And this guy was coming from a long way off, and he had to ride, ride the train all day long. And uh, the train was, was coming in late, and he's in what he considered to be very sloppy dress. Wrinkled suit. You know, he may have spilt his lunch on him. Who knows? He would probably look really, really clean to us since we don't dress like that anyway. So he, he gets off the train and he rushes to the home. And when he gets there, he's just mortified that all of the rest of the guests are there. And that they're all in formal dress. So he's really embarrassed. After a while, Mr. Rhodes comes out and he's wearing a worn, shoddy, ugly, old blue suit. And people tell the young man that before he got there, Mr. Rhodes had been in a tuxedo. But when Mr. Rhodes heard about what had happened to the young man, he went and changed his clothes so the young man would not be embarrassed to be the only one not in formal clothing. It's a very simple example of kindness and goodness in action. But you need to understand that Jesus took off his garment. He took off his kingly robe and his glorious crown and he put on the shabby suit of a human. His kindness and goodness in action, what did it get him? An inglorious death, deserted by his companions, left to suffer alone. Yet he knew the outcome would melt our hearts and bring us to repentance. So this morning, what do I want you to know? I want you to know that love, joy, peace, and patience are meant to strengthen and encourage you. Kindness and goodness allow you to strengthen and encourage others. So what do I want you to do? I want you to ask the Lord. Allow yourself to partner with him to bring kindness and goodness into the lives of those around you, even if you never get acknowledged here on the earth. Psalms 32, 11. So celebrate the goodness of God. He shows this kindness to everyone who is his. Go ahead, shout for joy. All you upright ones who want to please him.